Please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King. My name is Peter Schwanda, and those who know me well know that I love baseball. Now, I know there are more than a few Braves fans among us who are delighted in the World Series victory, but I want to talk about something that we all have in common, hopefully, which is a love for a 90s movie called The Sandlot. My favorite baseball movie, it tells the story of nerdy Scott Smalls, who moves to a small town uh, outside of L.A., and he meets some local kids and starts playing baseball with them. When they lose the only baseball they have, he goes to retrieve a backup baseball from his stepdad's trophy case. He comes back with the ball, and lo and behold, wouldn't you know it, this scrawny little kid hits his first ever home run over the fence into the domain of the beast, a giant dog of whom they are all afraid. The trouble is, this gets Smalls into the biggest pickle of his life, because that ball was an autographed ball. His friend Squint says, listen to me, Smalls, this is a matter of life and death. Where did your old man get that ball? What? I don't know. Some lady gave it to him. Why? Lady? Yeah, she even signed her name on it. Some lady named Ruth. Baby Ruth. Last week we started a sermon series on Ruth, and Babe Ruth, the greatest to play the game of baseball, was as foreign to Scott Smalls as the character of Ruth is likely to many Christians. Set in unusual circumstances and a time and place far away. In Jewish tradition, it's one of five books of wisdom writings that's brought out once a year and read. It's given a place of prominence, one of two books in scripture named after women. There's, there's much to offer in this short book, and yet most of us are unfamiliar with it. It's a story of uncertainty, of chance, of risk, of redemption, of God at work in the margins of life. It's also a story where we see God's care for the vulnerable and for those who live life experiencing the margins. It's also a story, as we can relate, where people faced questions that we face, where they wondered, what do we do in times of disaster? What do we do in times of decision? in times where we wonder, where is God? I think in times like this, we have a tendency when we ask, where is God, to think that the world works in one of two ways. The first is that God only works by direct, miraculous intervention. And we should just wait for him to work. And the second is to think foolishly that God is not at work and all we're left with is rolling the dice of good old-fashioned blind pagan luck. Let's just leave it to chance. The story of Ruth gives us another option. And like any story, the context help us to appreciate the details of this compelling story. Uh, if you didn't already grab your Pew Bible, you're going to find it helpful. It's page 208. It's the black book in front of you. I did my best to make sure that they were spread out, but if you need to awkwardly climb over a pew and grab a Bible, you won't even see me flinch from up here. Page 208. And the other benefit, this will give us a little bit of context. If you look at Ruth 1.1, we learn that the story of Ruth is set in the time when the judges ruled. But don't be fooled, it was actually a time of lawlessness. If you were to flip the page back, you'll see that the last verse that describes the time of the judges in the book Judges, the page before says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And in the story of Ruth, we find symbols for all of God's people. 
some who turned from God, some who turned to God, and the decisions that they made. So this morning we'll take a look at some significant decisions, we'll take a look at God's providence, and lastly we'll take a look at our role. First, three decisions that we see made in the book of Ruth so far. The first, to remind you if you weren't here last week, is a decision of what to do in crisis. We have Naomi and Elimelech who are facing famine in Bethlehem and they had to decide what to do. It's actually a common problem in scripture. Famine hits and people are left to decide, do we sojourn in a foreign land to seek relief from the famine? But something in this story is different. And the clue is found in the names. See, they left Bethlehem, which literally meant the house of bread, because there was no bread. Ironic. Elimelech, his name literally meant, my God is king. And he left for another land to seek refuge under a different king, the king of Moab. Ironic. Sons were meant in this culture to provide for the family. But Elimelech's sons, Melon and Kilion, their names meant weak and failure. Ironic. And ultimately, tragic. Because what we see in their story is that they moved to Moab, a place that the Lord had actually commanded his people not to go. They marry uh, and take wives from Moabite women, something that was prohibited. And they meet the sons and the father alike, an untimely death. In the moment of decision, they turned from what God had promised them in the promised land and went to enemy territory. One commentator put it like this. It says, in the story of Elimelech and his wife Naomi, we see a principle at work. If we obey God's will, everything in life holds together. But if we disobey, everything starts to fall apart. Now, in the Old Testament, we often see this pretty starkly. Following God leads to blessings. Turning from God leads to curses. Elimelech didn't see the direct work of God, and so he rolled the good old-fashioned luck dice and went to a pagan country. And things didn't go well when he stepped out of the path God has for him. Now in our lives, similar to Elimelech, we often don't see God working directly. And so we're left with a similar choice. Now consider the sin of Elimelech. Consider the sin in our life. Does God smite Elimelech with a lightning bolt from heaven? Do we experience direct punishment? Often not. I think in God's graciousness, we often instead experience the natural consequences of sin. A lie that leads to a broken relationship, an affair that ruins a marriage. For Elimelech, a sinful decision that sets a pattern of sin that ripples through the generations. See, the outworking of God, the outworking of our sin, is oftentimes in a less direct way. And that's also true of God's positive work in our lives. God's people stepped out of his path and things didn't go well. But thankfully, the rest of the story of Ruth gives us a picture of what happens when we do turn to God, turn our steps into his path. Instead of feeling like we are running on empty, like Naomi felt, she, she, her name means delight, and yet she said, call me bitter, because that's how my life is going, we learn that God has a different end in mind. And we see God at work through his 
providence. Decision number two. For Naomi and Ruth, in the context of grief, they've lost their husband, their sons. They face a decision, where do we go? Naomi decides to return to her hometown, to Bethlehem, to the place of God's promise. And Ruth decides to go with her. Not an easy decision. It meant leaving her father and her mother, her native land, as our text tells us. It meant going on a dangerous journey along a dangerous road to a place she'd never been, a foreigner and a refugee. And in God's providence, our reading last week ended with this simple line. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. They trusted in God, and God provided, not in some direct, direct earth-shattering way, but in the simple rhythms of nature, of the harvest, of rain that had come and ended a famine. And then we have the third decision, which is what we find in our passage today. Ruth wonders, how will we live? Here are Ruth and Naomi, two vulnerable women in a place that is foreign to Ruth, that in Naomi had a whole complexity of emotions in returning, and they face this decision. Now the narrator in verse one, he says, well, don't you know there was a worthy man who was a relative whose name was Boaz, but Naomi doesn't know this and Ruth doesn't know this. This is one of those asides to us, the readers, that the narrator gives us. So these two women who are vulnerable on the margins of society are faced with the question, how are we physically going to survive? How will we not starve to death? Now think about how many in our world today experience some type of vulnerability like this. Unable to provide, perhaps grieving, not given dignity or worth, physically vulnerable to attack or assault. This was the position they were in. And God cares for them compassionately. The vulnerable Ruth says, let me go glean. Despite the risks to her safety, to her dignity, she places a small step of trust in God's hands. Now in Ruth 1, we don't have some picture that Ruth has a fully formed, mature faith in God. She offers a simple phrase saying that she will go with Naomi, that Naomi's God would be her God. Keep in mind, Ruth grew up in an entirely different uh, culture. She was as different as you could imagine, ethnically, culturally, religiously. And she chose to follow the God of Naomi. And in this, we see a small amount of trust in God's providence. That is, his presence in the present. That God was at work to provide, to protect, and to work his purposes in the world. So determined not to starve, she heads for the fields. Now gleaning, uh, since we may be about as familiar with gleaning as Scott Smalls was with Babe Ruth, is going out to the fields to pick up the leftovers, the heads of grain that had fallen, left behind by the harvesters. And God had actually commanded to his people that when they harvested their fields, they were to leave these leftovers in order to provide for the vulnerable, for widows, for those who 
were food insecure, as we would say. You can actually do this here in Northern Virginia. I learned this this week. There's a Mid-Atlantic Gleaning Network, and you can travel to a bunch of farms here in Northern Virginia and help them collect things which have fallen. You know, for example, you can go to an orchard and collect the apples which have fallen from the tree, which we, when we put on our barber jackets and our jeans and take our Instagram pictures and go out there and pick you know, that nice, perfect bushel for our family, leave behind, those are on the ground, and they're good to eat. And you can pick them, and they get donated to places of food assistance. But this is not quite so romantic as going out to northern Virginia on a beautiful fall day and picking apples off the ground. This is for those who were on the verge of starving, who were vulnerable, who went alone among men, a stranger, a foreigner, not knowing if the fields were safe. Things could have gone very badly. And here's where God steps in. This great verse, turn to our, our passage here as we consider what happens with Ruth. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field of the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. She happened to come to the field of a worthy man, a man of dignity, a man who happened to be a relative, a man who is from Bethlehem, a man who, along with his workers, seem to follow God. Look at the greeting that they give and receive. The Lord be with you. They could be in our church, right? That's actually where that, that's where that comes from. We say that a number of times in our service. The Lord be with you. Now, the typical greeting in that culture would have just been shalom, saying peace, hello, the Lord be with you, and they answer back, not and also with you, the Lord bless you also, right? So we have a sense that God is present here by his people, and that Boaz and his harvesters are dependent on God just as Ruth is. She happened to come. How many times do you use a phrase like that thinking about your own life or describing something that has happened to your friends or family? Perhaps something went really well, and instead of chalking it up to God and his providence, we just say, I just, it happened to work out. When things happen to work out, I want you to consider that God may be at work, that God has got this, that as we will hear in our offertory, that he's got the whole world in his hands, that little details which seem to randomly or circumstantially work out, may actually be God and his provision. Look at the direct ways that he provides for Ruth. In verse 8, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. In other words, glean on. And not just glean on, when lunchtime comes, join in the drink, join in the food, and oh, by the way, I'm not just going to have you pick up the leftovers, you can go and take from the sheaves the food that's already been collected and bundled, the Instagram-worthy ones with the gleaming sun on them, the good stuff, and take out some of those and leave them for Ruth to take. It says that they set aside enough that was likely equivalent to half a month's wages of food. And what did she get to eat at lunch? Was it a few you know, small pieces? No, it was roasted grain. 
She ate until she was satisfied, and there was even leftovers to bring home. God's provision isn't just a scrap or a leftover. It's satisfying, and we see when she reports back to Naomi later in our passage that it's exciting. Her mother-in-law saw what she'd gleaned, and she responded. Anytime you see in Scripture an exclamation point, that's a, it, we don't, they don't, the translators don't uh, put those there without reason, right? Greek and Hebrew didn't have natural punctuation marks for exclamations. So when you see it, you know that it's, it's really important. You know what Naomi is saying when she says to him, blessed be the man who took notice of you? It's like saying, bless my heart. OMG. God showed up and gave you more than you were expecting. And not just that, God didn't just provide, he protected you. You found a safe field. Naomi zooms in on this fact, says, you found a field where you, you were free from assault, where you weren't attacked because she knows the reality of what could have happened. And it gets better. Look at verse 12 and the ways in which Boaz describes the way that God will protect Ruth in the future. The Lord repay you for what you've done. The Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It gets better because these small glimpses we have of God at work in the present in Ruth's life are actually signals, they're signposts that point us to God's providential work in his purposes well beyond Ruth's lifetime. And when the author who recorded this story of Ruth wrote it down, he had a perspective, which we now get to share as the readers, which Ruth didn't have on her own life. Boaz took notice of Ruth, even though she was a foreigner, because he saw the work of God in her story. Boaz asks his workers, who is this woman? He didn't know, but when he heard the name, he knew the story. He knew of a woman who had come, a foreigner, to seek refuge with God's people, trusting that by following her mother-in-law and leaving her family, that she was doing the right thing. We see God at work in Ruth's story. The God who takes notice of those on the margins, who rewards their faith with favor. We see a picture of God's grace in Boaz, who now has his watchful eye on Ruth. The word used to describe the kindness that Boaz shows is one of the most important Hebrew words in all of the Old Testament. I want you to practice it with me. Chesed. Make sure you get the good guttural. Chesed. Very good. Okay, some of you humored me. Some of you don't have, have masks on and, and you're careful about how much you wanted to have that guttural come out. Um, Hesed. It's a word that we translate as God's loving kindness, his, his love that's expressed in the covenant. It's a word not exclusively, but nearly exclusively used to describe God's love. A love that's expressed in laws. Laws like leave the leftovers in the field to pr pr provide for the vulnerable. It's expressed in care for those uh, who are across a line of ethnic or cultural difference. It's used to describe uh, a love that God has for his people and that he has for us. 
Now, while we may not see God's direct hand working in our life, it is this loving kindness that we see at work in small ways, often in retrospect, as we look back and say, well, it seemed like it just happened. But really, that was God's providential care for us. One of my favorite summaries here is Naomi's response to all that happens in chapter 2. In verse 22, she just says, it is good. Now, there's more to the story, but she sums it up there. It is good. God is at work, and it is good. Do we know where the story ends? No. Do you know where your story ends? No. Do you know how God's going to provide for you next week? Probably not. But you can trust that it is good. There's a a bad joke that if you've heard it, you've probably only ever heard it from a preacher. That's how bad it is. There's a village that faced a flood, and there's a, you know, devout Christian man in that town, and he said, not worried, God's going to save me. And then the water levels rose, they rose up to his knees, and his neighbors came by paddling a canoe. They said, get in, we're here to save you. He says, nope, I'm fine, God will save me. The waters rose a little while later. He's treading water, he's in his living room. He looks out the window and he hears an approaching motorboat. And his neighbors yell, get in, we're here to save you. No thanks, God will save me. A little while later, he's at the end of his rope, he's climbed up onto the roof of his house because the waters have risen so high and he hears the whoosh, whoosh. It's like he's in Northern Virginia, the amount of helicopters that go by here, right? He, He knows that sound, it's the helicopter approaching They come and they drop down, you know, the Coast Guard chopper drops down the basket and he says, get in, we're here to save you. No thanks, God will save me. Story comes to a tragic end. He comes to heaven and he asks God, God, where were you? I thought you were going to save me. And God, of course, in his humor says, what are you talking about? I sent a canoe, a motorboat, and a helicopter. You shouldn't laugh because it's not funny and it's a bad illustration. The point is, I sometimes wonder if God thinks, what more did you want? Look at all the small ways I was trying to provide for you. This silly story highlights the reality that oftentimes we look for God only in the extraordinary. And we miss what God has promised, which is to be present in the ordinary. The ordinary, very real moments of our lives. So what do we do? What's our role in this? What do we do when we face moments of decision, moments of disaster or grief, times where we wonder, where is God? Do we hope for some, you know, some good old-fashioned pagan luck? Roll the dice, let's see. Elimelech did. Do we look only for God's direct, miraculous hand at work? Imagine if that was what Ruth did. If she went out to the field and said, I'm only going to follow God if I come to that field and there are Five barley loaves and a small boy holding them and two fish for good measure. No. She knew that she needed to hang on the shred of hope, the small work of God. If she had insisted only on finding God in some miraculous intervention that she understood at the time, she might have missed out on all that God was doing in her story and is going to do in the rest of this story. Uh, Jake Hess shared at our Men's Academy this week about his sense of God's calling in his life, and he put it this way. 
God's calling is often indirect, a series of seemingly uninformed decisions that in hindsight were informed by God. How do we make sure that we don't miss out on seeing or experiencing God's indirect work? Let me offer three simple ways. The first is keep close to God and his people. There's a word that occurs a few times in Ruth. It's a verb meaning to cling or to cleave or to keep close is how our passage translates it. It's the same verb used in Genesis when it describes marriage, the idea that you would cleave or cling to or keep close to your spouse. And it used it, it used it in this passage to describe Ruth keeping close to Naomi and her God, keeping close to his people. It pops up twice in our passage. Look at verse 8 with me. Boaz said to Ruth, now, now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field, but keep close to my young women. And again in verse 21, you shall keep close by my young men until they've finished all my harvest. Which, by the way, that was about two months. He said, for two months, you're set for food until we figure something out. Keep close. Keep close to God's people. Yes, we should avoid the deliberate sin and deliberate turning from God that Elimelech makes the mistake of. But more importantly, more positively, we should keep close to God's people through prayer, through his word. We should keep close to people who give us good godly advice, who maybe correct us when we need it who remind us to keep God's perspective in perspective. Secondly, be conformed, meaning simply be willing to believe that God might want to shape you and change your heart through whatever circumstance you're going through. One commentator put it like this, before God changes our circumstances, he wants to change our hearts. If our circumstances change for the better, but we remain the same, then we will become worse. God's purpose in providence is not to make us comfortable, but to make us conformable, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. God wants to change you through circumstances where you need to be dependent and looking for his small work. And then thirdly, take steps of trust. Yes, I know we can be impatient. Yes, I know we're, we're called to wait for the Lord. But God also wants us to take small steps, not rash decisions, small steps of trust that allow God to direct and guide us. Some of you may know the phrase steerage way. It's a principle in boating, whether it's a very large ship or a whitewater raft, that in order to steer a boat in the water, in order for that rudder to be effective, you have to be moving. You have to discern what God is up to by doing, by taking a step of trust. A personal example, uh, seven years ago, uh, I faced some health crises that forced me to uh, stop working full time. Also happened to be the time that I moved to Virginia and got married and started coming to Christ the King. And at that time, uh, I began part time in a role here at Christ the King, and Reverend Glade asked me to consider ordained ministry. Now, I'm not sure if he knew something I didn't, but I said, no thanks. But I did agree to participate in something that I'd never heard of before and which some of you are on, called a discernment committee. A group of people that I would meet with for a handful of weeks to think it through and pray it through. And the thing that I said no thanks to changed. 
God changed my heart. He changed my sense of what it was he wanted to do in the midst of a challenging time. By his slow work, I was redirected. And this was at a time where I was wondering, where is God in the mess? Where is God when I'm in the hospital for the third time? Where is God when I've had to stop work and I'm not sure how I'm going to provide for myself, let alone entering into marriage and thinking about providing for a family? Where is God? Small step of trust and allowing God to redirect you, to conform you. Let's come to a close. I think your life can probably feel like a mess sometimes too, or it certainly has. You've probably asked, where is God? And if we are tempted to trust in the, the good old-fashioned blind pagan luck, I encourage you not just to only look for God's miraculous work, to, to trust in his providence, his work in the present of your life, to trust that he's got this, to trust that he's got the whole world in his hands, as John is going to sing for us in a moment. Philosopher Alistair McIntyre says, I can't answer the question, what ought I to do, unless I first ask the question, answer the question, of what story am I a part? Ruth's story reminds us that Ruth's story is God's story. It reminds us that our story is God's story. So if you are feeling vulnerable, if you are grieving, if you are feeling some disconnect because of your ethnicity, your culture, Ruth felt all of those things. And they're part of God's story because God was fulfilling his purposes through his overflowing goodness to Ruth and to future generations. Ruth would be the great grandmother of King David. And David, down through the generations, would eventually lead to a greater son, Jesus Christ. And great David's greater son shows that love to us, that chesed, that loving kindness to us, so that we can know the story of which we're a part, so that we can know what we ought to do, so that we can know and find favor in God's eyes. So that we can know that God orients us to his purposes and his providence, that we can be reminded the Holy Spirit protects us, and that we can be reminded that God provides for us a table in the presence of our enemies, in the midst of life that seems like a mess. Amen.